0: Are you a Stuff to Blow Your Mind fan? Are you a New Yorker? Do you plan to attend this year's New York Comic Con? If so, then you've got to check out our exclusive live show, NYCC Presents Stuff to Blow Your Mind Live Stranger Science. Join all three of us as we record a live podcast about the exciting science and tantalizing pseudoscience underlying the hit Netflix show Stranger Things. It all goes down Friday, October 6th from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the Hudson Mercantile in Manhattan. Stuff You Missed in History Class has a show right before us, so you can really double down. Learn more and buy your tickets today at NewYorkComicCon.com slash NYCC presents. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And
1: I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, it is time for another Listener Mail episode. It's been a while since we did one, right, guys?
0: Yeah, it's been a while since Carney has come out of uh, his lair to uh, greet us with various bits of Listener Mail from our, uh, our, our listeners all over the world. Carney's had some life changes recently, though, right, guys?
1: Well, Carney, I believe, has a crush. Ooh. Carney the Mailbot, of course, if you're not uh, familiar, formerly Arnie the Mailbot, uh, mm-hmm. with the addition of Cartesian Doubt, we became Carney. And now I think he has learned to love because I've seen him <laughs> – uh, writing the name of another uh, machine here in the office Have y'all have y'all noticed oh, this? Yeah,
0: I, I noticed somebody etched a serial number a uh, really long one into the wall with uh, a saw of some sort that yeah. would be uh, Carney, i guess a big heart around it honestly i
2: try to stay out of the whole thing they both tried to get me into a room to mitigate the whole situation the other day
1: and i just you know
0: i'm busy doing podcasts yeah <laughs> sorry Carney. you don't want to get into machine
1: politics no yeah. Well, maybe by the end of today's episode, he and the copy machine can work it out.
0: I hope so. I hope so. But for now, he needs to do his job. That's right. And that is to spit out listener mail for us. And, it's, and we need to note here that we receive a great deal of listener mail. We, we get it in on the email. Uh, we get it uh, through the various social media accounts. We get it uh, lots of cool feedback on the discussion module, our group on Facebook. Uh, these are all tremendous ways to get in touch with us. Occasionally, even some snail mail comes in, mm-hmm. uh, but not a lot Uh no reason you should stop. I actually you pulled do
2: some stuff from Twitter this time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. cool.
0: I know we've, we we receive stuff on Tumblr even. Yeah. So the bottom line is we receive a great deal of cool stuff. We try to respond to to uh, a lot of it, but there's a lot that we can't even you know we don't have time to respond to. But we do like to have Carney bring us uh, some choice bits of listener mail so that we can read them on the air and uh, and discuss uh, the questions, the answers, or just sort of bask in you know the the glory of the moment. <laughs>
1: Well, time is precious, so let's get right into it. I can see he's spitting one out right now. All right. What's it look like?
0: This came in on the discussion module, that uh, group on Facebook that we were talking about that all of you are welcome to uh, to join in on. Uh, Darwin writes in and says, You mentioned on the podcast last week that perhaps the living in a simulation trope might someday replace the alien abduction narrative. Last week on BBC's Infinite Monkey Cage, Brian Cox... This is the uh, the younger uh, scientist Brian Cox. Oh, so this not, isn't the classic the, character actor Brian <laughs> yeah, Cox. Yeah, not Manhunter Brian Cox. <laughs> uh anyway, Cox and his panel discussed this very topic, even submitting that such a belief bordered on the same leap of faith that is required for religious beliefs. I think it is uh, fascinating, even though I doubt that you would be able to create certain physical phenomena as we observe them using digital methods. The problem of pseudo-random versus truly random physical events, of course, maybe with highly advanced technologies required to recreate a universe such limitations uh, may be uh, surmountable it is endlessly fascinating topic and I would love to hear you guys weigh in on it at some point well speaking of Cartesian doubt this is actually a, a
2: good point for it because we talked about this during the Mandela effect uh, episode this is where I believe this this came up and then you guys also did it in a what was your computer simulated episode was it the created universes one
1: yes in the mm-hmm. episode where we talked about creating a universe in the lab we also talked Talked about the idea of creating a universe in a computer simulation and how you could know that. I, I'm skeptical about this idea. I voiced some of my skepticism in that episode. And we actually got some replies uh, about that. We, we Several people sent us really interesting emails about that. I'm going to try to read at least one of those today.
0: And Darwin here mentions the alien abduction episode. And, uh, yeah, in that right. one, we were talking about this this trope of, of alien abduction being the, the narrative that you draw in when trying to make sense of some sort of a you – know, paranormal sensory experience Mm -hmm. and to what degree we might replace that in the future with something like uh, the idea that our reality is a computer simulation. Like at what point would there be a tipping point uh, at which this would become the default or one of the default narratives for some people understanding what happened. The so, idea
2: being that like the matrix would sort of replace alien abduction as these, the uh, narrative of explanation yeah. for these things that we have no scientific
1: uh well, explanation for well wait a minute then what is the experience narrative there so if in alien abduction it's you know there's certain patterns of like i woke up i was in a room surrounded by beings i was taken up into another place x y and z happened to me what what's the simulated universe version of that
0: well joe i was uh, i was coming back from uh from uh, the joint uptown a few nights back and uh Suddenly, everything got a little flashy, and uh, the next thing I knew, these uh, these people were coming for me. I think what had happened is that I had uh, I had uh, glitched out of the computer simulation for a moment. Oh, and uh, the antivirus software is on your case. Yeah, they're, they're on my case. I think I might have flopped out of the future tank that I'm uh, <laughs> that my actual body is positioned in. So they put me back in, and they've done something to my memory, but. I did get to see through the veil and see through the computer simulation that we all buy into every day. This is an actual
2: argument that a few people have, have proposed as an explanation for the Mandela effect, that we exist within a kind of like hollow deck simulation and that when the Mandela effect
0: is observed by people, it's because there's some glitch in the software. We do not buy it. <laughs> yeah. our, our episode strongly argues that uh, the Mandela effect is just, uh, uh, false memories. just false memory, shared false memory. The amazing part about it is what it reveals about the inner working of memory.
1: Well, yeah. Didn't we get at least one email from someone who is fairly angry arguing <laughs> that it's more likely that we live in parallel universes or a glitchy simulation than that people misremember things? I thought that was just you. You were
2: trolling <laughs> Robert and me. But it, it maybe it was a real person.
1: I don't know. I think it's kind of likely that people really often misremember things. Well,
2: yeah, I I, I think that's... We make a strong case for that <laughs> in the episode. And it's, it's connected to the alien abduction episode, too. We've had kind mm-hmm. of like a false memory theme going for the last month.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, well I've got at least one more email about the idea of living in a computer simulation. I mentioned that we, this came up in our episode about how to create a universe in the lab. Now a lot of that episode was on the physics idea. It was, we talked about one book in particular, but the work of uh, cosmologists like Alan Guth over the years about how it might hypothetically be possible, it seems like kind of a stretch, but there are plausible physical hypotheses about how you you might be able to do an experiment in high-energy particle collider that could create a universe in the lab. But we also talked about the idea of creating a universe as a simulation uh, on software. And I I talked about multiple reasons I don't think this is likely, that our universe Mm -hmm. is a simulation. Uh, Number one, it, it would just require so much energy to simulate a realistic universe why is that something that we think future civilizations would spend their limited resources on?
0: Well well, because a lot of people uh, haven't you spend seen their the limited. Matrix? Yeah, well, yeah, but also a lot of people spend their limited resources now on simulated worlds. You just – you have to extrapolate it to like a global economy. We're just
2: batteries,
1: man. I mean – They're just taking our energy right back. Just thinking about
0: the information
1: density of Mm -hmm. simulating an actual world with actual physics that works. I mean one of the problems is you can do science experiments and the laws of physics always seem to hold. So that means at some level they're simulating everything all the way down. It's not just like a low-res simulation with some kind of put-together sprites at the higher level. They're simulating every – physical interaction of every atom and molecule that just seems like that would be so energy intensive it's ridiculous so i'm gonna i'm just playing devil's advocate here i agree with you but like i i immediately think of like ragdoll
2: physics in like the video games i play like like skyrim or fallout or something like that right right that's a very limited version of what you're talking about, which here. are
1: just orders of magnitude simpler than simulating real physics. Yeah, and what yeah. I was saying is, the easiest way to simulate real physics would just
0: be to have a real universe. Well, one of the things that we brought up in that episode, I think, was was the issue of mirrors and video games. Oh, okay. yeah. if, if you see a working mirror in a video game, you're pro- you're seeing a great deal of, of work taking yeah, place. Yeah, and I'll, and some of the times you're actually seeing some trickery to you know to because there's no light. In a video game, you don't have photons in a video game. But to have this kind of simulation that Joe's talking about, you would need to have that.
1: I had another objection to the idea that we're living in a simulated universe, and it went sort of like this. if we're living in a simulated universe that perfectly mirrors a real universe, we should be able to create a simulated universe within our simulated universe. And then within the created simulated universe, they should be able to create a universe within the simulated universe. If this is all running on hardware that is upstream of the simulations that go all the way down, you'd eventually reach a, a sort of peak information density that the hardware at the top could no longer sustain. And that's where this next email comes in. So this comes from our listener, Jerry. Who says, hi, guys. Love the show. I was listening to your out of chaos podcast and had a few thoughts pertaining to the computational requirements of complex simulation. Um, and he calls the section relativity of our programmer God's time. I work on virtually prototyping satellite imaging systems by simulating photorealistic imagery, taking into account the physics of the imaging system and the light's interaction with the observed scene. Now, I can do a pretty darn good job simulating imagery with any computer. It just takes longer given a less powerful computer. Maybe the beings simulating us have a lot more time, so an hour in their time is a second in ours, or they have us turn off for the night and start us back up in the morning for maintenance, my simulations don't notice any or my temporal discontinuity. Also, now the beings want to create a simulation inside their simulation, sure, but they have finite computing power too, so it'll go extremely slow relative to the original programmer gods, and the embedded simulations will asymptotically approach some constant computational requirement. I thought that was really interesting, but he goes on. Another solution is to give your world some natural equalizer like an ego. I'd argue the past 300 years, as humans have gotten way more computationally complex... The loss of biodiversity has made the earth as a whole way less computationally complex. Someday we'll have some computationally tricky doomsday device which will solve its own computational problem. Uh, and then he goes on to just say some very nice things about our show and, and all that and we appreciate the flattery but really especially appreciate these ideas. I think I, I'm not convinced by them that we do live in a computer simulation, but I think that is a reasonable objection to my uh time of computation and information density objection.
0: I have another one too uh, that just came to mind hearing uh, just 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 to spring off of this fantastic response is that uh, you know we, we can we can easily think of like a whole world simulation and all the inherent problems there, a multi-user situation and all the problems there. But how about this? The next time you're in a small, windowless, mirrorless bathroom, think, <laughs> what if this is the simulation? And it began basically the the moment I walked in here. Yes. Like this is when the simulation kicked on. Everything else is just, uh, you know, false memory essentially. Yeah. And the simulation is going to end when I flush the toilet. It's it's kind of like if you're filming a TV series and you don't have a lot of money for an episode, you do a, what a bottle episode, yep, right? Yep. So that maybe that's how the our far future selves are dealing with this. Like we can't actually recreate the the 21st century, but let's just do a bathroom scene because bathrooms from the 21st century were pretty cool, and that will immerse the single user in that world. Right.
1: And giving the entire world full of people false memories actually would help because this goes right along with what y'all were saying about the failures of memory related to. the the Mandela effect, memory is very low resolution compared to reality. It's incredibly low resolution. Quite, it's, yeah. you know, so you it would not be all that computationally difficult to supply somebody with the vague kinds of memories people actually have, but they have the illusion that their memories are vivid. Mm-hmm. This may explain why sometimes when I go into the bathroom I imagine what life would be like if I was
2: stuck in there forever. <laughs> you know, like, like, how would I sleep on the floor? Would I drink water from the sink? Would I bathe in the toilet? It, I would
1: say next time you are in a work meeting mm. that seems to <laughs> go on forever, you should contemplate the possibility that the universe actually began at the beginning of this meeting and the rest of your Ooh. life up until this point is just an inserted false memory at low resolution to justify you listening to this pitch about how you're going to optimize your new Whatever.
2: Your SEO, dude. Yeah. yeah. And then, <laughs> then you gotta snap
0: back into it and try and remember what the person was telling you.
2: Sounds good. Alright, we got another one related to, uh. Oh, I, th- I think Carney's handing one to you there. Oh, 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 hey, ow! This is sharp. Okay. Oh, this is one about our Samurai Swords episode. Oh, no wonder. Okay, so this is from Steve, and he says, Enjoyed your program on Japanese katana swords. Thanks. I think the development that you skipped over was the reintroduction of swords as standard equipment for officers and sergeants during the period just before World War II. Most of these individuals were not samurai class and did not own swords, so mass-produced pieces were issued to them. These so-called Showato were distinguished by minuki of three imperial chrysanthemums rather than the traditional heraldic minuki of older swords. Most were destroyed during the occupation, but many survive. Hmm. So what Steve's referring to here is a study that we looked at during our Samurai Swords episode that took a sword that was recovered from presumably some battle during world war ii this was the 1940s the u.s army commissioned a metallurgical composition composition study of the sword to determine how it was smithed and they found that this sword that they had recovered was actually significantly lower in quality than they had been led to believe from the history of sword smithing specifically for katanas uh like If I remember correctly, like the carbon composition was off by by percentages, uh, the angle of the sword wasn't the right way, things like that. So it seems like Steve is telling us here why that's the case. They had this entire other line of swords that were made specifically for the big war.
0: Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, that did not come up in uh, in our uh, episode, but that adds a little more background uh, to what they were observing
2: there. Yeah, and so like let's let's try to apply this to a fictional example, okay? So okay. we talked about Kill Bill in the Samurai Sword's episode when uh, uh the bride is fighting the Crazy 88 with her like super awesome samurai sword that is is smithed in the very traditional way, so it's sh- both sharp and flexible uh, and has a has a solid core, right? Mm-hmm. She's able to Cut in half other warriors' swords when the Crazy 88 attack her. So maybe they've got these uh, mass-manufactured shawato sh- swords, huh. but she's got the real deal. Well, the- she's got Hotori Hanzo steel.
0: Crazy 88 should have really um, <laughs> paid more attention to their, it's uh, true. their gear. I mean, but it's there's a lot re- of them. You it's probably really that it's much just, money per – Exactly. It's true, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Each sword is priceless, so that's priceless times 88.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I guess the argument too is, is like if you're wailing on someone with 88 samurai swords, they don't, they really don't even need to be sharp. They can, you don't even right. need to take them out of the, the sheath. Yep. But
2: thank you, Steve. I really appreciate that. That clarifies that. I, we assumed, I think, in that episode that there was something along those lines that probably like late uh, 19th century
0: and early 20th century katanas were not of the same make. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will uh, get some more listener mail from Carney and share it with the rest of you. All right. We're back. We have a little bit of listener mail here uh, dealing with the episode that Joe and I recorded, uh, The Buddha is a Mountain, Hmm. which was a pretty, pretty fun episode about the Lashon Buddha, the, the giant Buddha. Uh, uh, that one uh, finds in China this enormous uh, humanoid structure that has been carved into the mountain itself, lording over the river below. Yes,
2: kind of like Stone Mountain here in Georgia.
0: Well, we we do. I think Stone Mountain came up in that. Actually, that was a very interesting, Just less
2: racist. <laughs> well,
0: that, that this was a very interesting episode because it did come out ahead of a lot of the. Um, A lot of the political discussions that have been going on regarding uh, monuments and statues here in the United States.
1: Yeah, I guess – I didn't even think about that really. But maybe we did get a little listener mail about that. But yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, we talked in the episode about the idea of statuary being a type of depiction that inherently carries like a a moral valence to it. It's like if you were to have a photograph of somebody – or have – well, maybe not a photograph. I don't know. But if you like write a book about somebody, it's not assumed that you think that person was a good person. You might write a book about a serial killer right. or a horrible dictator. But if you put up a statue of a person, it, it is just part of our cultural uh, uh, language that that is a thing of honor. You never put up a statue of somebody you don't like.
0: Yeah, You know, we I think we – we barely, if at all, discuss Confederate monuments in that episode because again, it was before um, it really um, picked up as a topic here, yeah, uh, but I do encourage uh, anyone out there who's interested in that topic to listen to that episode because it's kind of an interesting way to think about it ab- about a controversial topic uh, free of the actual um, you know uh, current events. Mm-hmm. But the uh, bit of listener mail I'm going to read here doesn't concern anything happening here in America. It concerns something happening in China and concerns some of the local accounts of the Lashan Buddha. We heard from a listener by the name of Danny. He's an American with a, with a company in uh, Chengdu, uh, and they uh, he has his uh, staff listen to our podcast to improve their English. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, staff. No, no, he sa- he says they, they get a lot of a lot of great stuff out of it out of it and they enjoy they really enjoy the episode uh since it related to something local to them. Yeah. Cool. Uh so he he said that he had they had no corrections, uh aside from the fact that uh the the mountain itself it is uh shan. Uh shan meaning mountain. So you you may mountain, if you will. Uh but then he he went on to share some various tidbits from local inhabitants about uh, basically bits of folklore uh, related to the Lushan Buddha, uh, and he, he adds that uh, we don't actually believe any of these points, but a lot of Szechuanese do, and they are relatively well-known things that are said of the Buddha. Um, he said they also give a little insight into how even modern-day Chinese mythology bends the, the line between the animate and the inanimate. So I'm just going to run through these. I, I found these tremendously fascinating. Um, apparently, the Buddha's facial expression changes in reaction to tragic events in China. Wow. First, he points to the Lashan giant Buddha closed tears event. That's uh, and he's, that's a translation from Chinese, where apparently the Buddha closed his eyes and shed tears for all the lost souls as a result of the 1959 through 61 famine, which killed between 15 and 30 million people. Uh, he says the Buddha was uh, seen to look very angry in 1976 in the year when Mao Zedong uh, died in the same year, uh, the same year that uh, Tengshan earthquake uh, killed thousands of people says the, the Buddha also apparently expresses joy or pride for China as well. His head started to glow with a pulsating light in the year 2000 when China joined uh, the WTO and made uh, the bid to host the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games. Hmm. Another one that they found this is kind of a random thing that they found on the Internet in Chinese. He points to an event uh, that uh, supposedly happened on May 7, 2002 uh, in the morning. When uh, there suddenly uh, there were dark clouds around the Buddha, and suddenly there appeared a halo-like phenomenon. Uh, the, the rising sun flashed around the statue with a diameter of about 300 meters, creating a colorful halo of light. Mm. He says in 2008, after the earthquake, the Buddha was seen crying. Uh, uh, it says this one a lot of people believe, and there are even pictures online. Wow. So this is kind
2: of like when we get um like uh like stigmata effects on like statues or something like that, or I'm thinking hmm. also of like. Um have you guys ever heard of like manifestations of Jesus in like everyday objects? Oh yeah, with of course yeah. Yeah, yeah. when I was living in uh Massachusetts, there was one of these that happened in I think it was Malden, Massachusetts, and uh it was in a the, a Catholic hospital window. There was like a manifestation that, that looked like it was Jesus, but it it was like some kind of smoke damage
0: or something mm. to the window. Well, I said I would definitely say that with LaShawn Buddha Uh, Given the irrigation system that's worked out around it, I mean, it would make sense that it would appear to weep. Sure. Certainly sometimes. Uh, he also points out, he says, quote, it's often said that there is also a treasure built into the statue behind his heart, ears and eyes. No one can tell me what the treasure is supposed to be, but I would not be all too surprised if something was there because of the mystical powers that Chinese myth gives to many minerals, such as jade's ability to transcend the realm of the living. Sometimes something I think you guys have covered before in a previous well, episode. We had, mm-hmm. Yeah, we
2: talked about that in the
0: jade burial suit episode. We yeah. sure did. So I love these tidbits. They really uh, they really add, add a little more depth and a little uh, lo, you know local intel to our episode. And I I I had to read this one too after he shared the following. Please feel free to read any of this on the podcast in whole or in part including my name. If you do, I will take the whole company out for a day to go visit the Buddha and we will bring you back some pictures. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah
2: do it. So, yeah, I want to see some pictures.
0: Yeah, it's always great
2: because, you know, we can sit here in in Atlanta, Georgia and do research until our eyes bleed and pull up a bunch of facts and then present them to you, the audience. But if you're actually physically close to some of these things like Academ Goradoc, we received a bunch mm-hmm. of uh, mail from people who who visited there before. You know, it's, it's especially
1: helpful for us to hear these firsthand accounts.
0: All right. What do you have next for us uh, there,
1: Carney? So we got one coming in from Allison about science communication. Now, this is going back to our episode about science communication from after Robert went to the World Science Festival in New York.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, Science communication breakdown. Wait, is that a Led Zeppelin reference? I think it may have been an accidental uh, Led Zeppelin reference. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Communication breakdown. (laughs)
0: Right. But that was what the episode was about, like, you know, breakdowns in the communication of science and scientific New scientific topics to the public, especially as it relates to climate change. Uh, Let's see. What else? Uh, Vaccines.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was related to the idea that people are not necessarily convinced by facts and evidence that Mm -hmm. there's a lot of psychology about what actually causes people to make their minds up about controversial issues and that it's there's a lot of social aspects and cultural identity wrapped up in how we take sides on issues that there appears to be some controversy about, and about how our, how we can deal with that in science communication. But anyway, Allison has a fantastic question, and something we actually deal with a, a good bit, I'd say. She says. Hi, guys. I've enjoyed your show for a long time, but only recently had a good excuse to send an email. You recently did an episode on the science communication breakdown, and I was wondering if, in your research, you came across any good idea or theories about how science communicators should address the way that scientific facts change as our understanding evolves. For example, uh, for a very long time, nutritional scientists have pushed the idea that carbohydrates are a good energy source for humans, while fat was associated with a bunch of different health problems. Recently, though, our understanding of nutritional science has begun to change. Perhaps fat won't kill you, and perhaps carbs are more detrimental to health than anybody wanted to admit. I've seen a lot of people express a sense of betrayal over this reversal of sentiments. How are you supposed to trust anything these scientists say, they wonder, if a few decades down the line they're going to do a 180 on their position? How are science communicators supposed to convince the public to walk back from positions they have long uh, been considered solid theory? Also, she says, uh, if you guys haven't done an episode on ketosis – I'd love to hear your take on it. I've been living on fewer than 20 grams of carbs a day for two years. Contrary to what the dietitians tell me, I've never felt better. Thanks so much for your educational entertainment, Allison. So what she's talking about here reminds me of
2: this Lewis Black bit that you guys have probably heard before. And I think I've even referenced it on the show before where he's like – so when I was growing up, there were these studies and they said, milk is good for you. You gotta drink milk. Drink milk. And then all of a sudden there were studies and they said, milk is bad for you. Don't drink so much milk. You gotta take the fat out of the milk, right? And then all of a sudden it turns around again, milk is good for you, right? Mm-hmm. So these science studies seem to contradict one another back and forth. And this is essentially what she's getting at.
1: Yeah. So I actually have several thoughts about this. Mm-hmm. One of the, one of them is that this is partially an artifact of problems in science communication more so than science itself, though there are problems with some aspects of the science. So a lot of times what will happen is there will be a new study that says on lab rats, we found that if you give them this extremely high dosage of milk proteins over this many months, they have a 60% higher chance of having this effect than if you don't. And so then the People who are running like newspapers or doing the nightly news, I guess if this is back in the 90s or the 80s or whatever, would say scientists have discovered that milk will give you cancer. It is bad for you. Uh, And so they take this highly uh, nuanced kind of subtle effect that's been demonstrated in one experiment and turn that into an incredibly uh, simple pronounced statement about what is good for you or what is bad for you, not really noting that maybe the effect was subtle, that the uh, experiment was done on a certain number of animals that weren't even humans, you know, stuff like this. Yeah, let
2: me see if I can try to reverse engineer this, too, from like a media literacy standpoint, because I think even for some members of our audience who might actually be scientists themselves, they don't. Uh, necessarily know how that information comes to us science communicators in the media right so for instance we get these press releases and it'll say uh, what was her example
1: well she brings up uh, fat versus carbs and the health effects there
2: right so we'll get a press release and it'll say that and it will have a link where you can go and you can read the full 20-page report. But sometimes, people, sometimes, Sometimes it's behind a paywall. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And sometimes your organization doesn't supply you with, uh, you know, the access to the databases behind these paywalls, And right? sometimes you have to go to the researcher's home. Yes, yeah. or call them, right? Yeah, yeah. and not every <laughs> journalist is actually going to do the work to go get primary resources, especially in this era of mass content creation, right? Right. So usually what ends up happening... Is they just grab the information right out of the press release, rewrite it a little bit, and focus on that one thesis statement, right? What doesn't happen is – they don't look at the literature review inside the actual paper that sets up the study within the context
1: of all the other studies that are done on this topic. Right. Another problem is that within the world of journalism, especially on the Internet, but it was probably true on TV and stuff like that, too, that there's very little incentive to accurately communicate the, the subtleties and the nuances of scientific results, yeah. put everything in context, communicate, you know, some caveats that that it might not be as clear cut as it first seemed from your headline. Because what people want to click on is something that says, I have the new answer for you. Milk is going to kill you. You will never believe
0: this fact about milk. Right. You know, and here's the other thing, too, uh, is that. So we have the we have the the, the journalist, we have the, the the scientist, but then of course we also have the consumer end. Yeah. And I can't help but think about well we you know all the all that we've been talking about with false me- memories and misattribution, as well as just the the idea that once a particular narrative gets out there, take Lewis Black for instance. Now I know it's a bit, so I don't I don't really mean to dissect a comedic bit too right. much, but. In this example, like, did, was he actually like reading a lot of literature about milk or is it just no. in the background of his mind he picks up on this narrative that milk is, is good and then it's bad? Right. I think he's specifically talking about seeing headlines on either nightly
2: mm-hmm. cable news or in a newspaper. Yeah. So
0: on one level, it's it's to what degree a certain bit of research makes a splash in the headlines and then to what extent it's picked up on and, and, and sticks with the individual. Right. Again,
1: the low resolution of your memory is yeah. contributing to this.
0: I, I can't help but, but be reminded of the episode we did on uh, only children and the psychology mm. behind it and the fact that you had one – uh, you know decades and decades old uh, It was in like the late 19th century wasn't yeah yeah it? basically yeah. over a century old this uh a horrible in, in psychological horrible methodology yeah. yeah making the case that that only children were monsters and plenty of studies have come along just one after the other disproving that and yeah. showing that only children are not monsters they're not uh lonely they're not uh you know craven or spoiled etc But we keep sticking to this previously established uh, um, narrative just because it made such a media splash and nothing after that was able to achieve as much resonance. And because it's
1: easy to remember. Yeah. You got to think, I mean, like the access theory of memory, that things that are simple statements that are easy to remember are going to have much more uh, purchase in your memory than things that are complicated and nuanced and hard to explain and have some conflicting results and Mm -hmm. you got to put it in a lot of context. So, yeah, that's one thing. Part of this is an artifact of how science journalism gets done. Part of it is an artifact of our low-resolution but there's another thing that has to do with the science itself, which is that some subjects are, as it stands today, more unstable than others regarding the scientific consensus. Mm-hmm. And if you read scientific literature critically, you can usually start to get a sense of which subject areas are producing more solid, dependable results and which ones are still mired in some kind of legitimate controversy. Uh, experimental design plays a big role in this. Nutrition is a classic example of an area that can be extremely difficult to properly control experiments. Like Studies need to take place over a long period of time to see long-term effects. Right. They often rely on people to accurately report what they eat. You can kind of imagine what some problems with that might be uh-huh. um, and add that to the fact that, that there have been a lot of financial interest in the production of certain results in nutrition science. So a lot of the stuff you might have heard in the history of science isn't necessarily being done by some independently funded university experiment, but it's done by some research group that's funded by... By the sugar industry and what do you know they find out that fats are bad for you and sugar is good we actually have
2: a one of my favorite things that's ever been done at how stuff works was created by one of our video producers paul Deccan. and it is a in-depth look at the sugar industry's influence on academic papers about the nutritional effects of sugar
1: over the last like 50 years right so, so, there are a lot of things to take into consideration. Some subject areas are just are just swampier than others they've got more problems i mean, you'll notice that in i don't know uh you know very like material science areas there's just not going to be a lot of controversy about whether this new alloy is actually as strong as they say it is um but there might be if there's somebody who's got a financial interest in it and they're publishing the you know in uh, studies that they've funded. Anyway, I think it's an excellent question you ask, Allison. It's something that we wrestle with all the time, and and the answer is difficult. There's no silver bullet on how to fix this. I think – It has to do with helping people understand the complexities of science and understand the meta complexity of how other people come to believe in the ideas about scientific consensus and where they get their impressions about what scientists say.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess like this is a, a difficult problem to solve, but I think like two steps that could be taken to help it, which probably, let's be honest, won't happen in the near future are that. Uh, media organizations need to be more thorough in their research and their depiction of these studies, mm-hmm. but then also the consumers themselves need to have media literacy skills that they can rely on to understand these studies better or to look at multiple sources
0: and kind of triangulate what's actually going on here. All right. Well, it looks like Carney is coming at you, Christian, with uh, another piece of listener mail. What's he got there for you? Well, this one's great.
2: This is actually a letter from a listener named Lindsay telling us about her personal alien abduction experience based on our two alien abduction episodes. Lindsay says... When I was growing up, about ten years old, I had a clubhouse outside of my house and would camp out and sleep inside of it on some summer nights. It was sturdy and constructed by hand, lofted on wooden posts that acted as stilts about eight feet off the ground. One night, I climbed up the ladder with my sleeping bag. Pulled up the ladder so nothing else could come up. I read some comic books and fell asleep. This is, by the way, like my ideal way to go to bed, Lindsay. <laughs> uh, the clubhouse had one side of double-paned windows, one side that had a doorless doorway through which you could see my neighbor's yard, and the other two were solid wood walls. I slept facing out the doorway. I woke up in the middle of the night one night and was frozen in fear because in my neighbor's yard I saw a saucer about the size of an average circular above-ground pool hovering over their yard, absolutely still, about a hundred feet into the air. It was large and very cinematically stereotypical, a green glow, metallic saucer, a beam coming down from the saucer, that sort of thing. I couldn't see anything inside of it because it was oriented above me. I sat still, thinking that whatever was inside could possibly sense movement, and I felt like I was having trouble breathing. It was silent at first, and then I started to hear something that was difficult to describe. It was quiet, but in a way that felt loud and overwhelming. I could hear a ringing in my ears and I think it felt louder than it was because the world was quiet, but the inside of my head wasn't. I remember being terrified, but not that I was going to be hurt, just that I didn't know what was going to happen. I believe I forced myself to close my eyes, thinking that maybe the saucer couldn't move while I was looking at it, and I either fell asleep or I woke up again and it was gone. I didn't tell anybody because the whole situation felt fishy to me, and while I believe in aliens, I don't believe we've had any contact with them, nor they with us." Years later, after keeping better track of my sleep habits and dreams, I learned about sleep paralysis, and had experienced it a couple of other times throughout high school. When I'd wake up with it in my room, I could hear something that sounded like tribal percussion from the living room, though nobody was in there, and I could see that the lights were not on. In these moments, it was the scariest that I couldn't move. It felt the same way an arm does when you wake up in the middle of the night with your arm behind you, and you need to use your other arm to pick it up and put it back to get the blood flowing again. The difference The difference is that none of your body parts are able to move the other ones back into place or shake them out. Though I never again had visual hallucinations from sleep paralysis, Only auditory sensations. I am thoroughly convinced that what I experienced with the saucer in my neighbor's yard was indeed sleep paralysis. Being frozen in fear was probably physically being frozen and unable to move due to this. And it all went away when I went back to sleep and somehow broke the cycle.
0: Huh. Well, that's interesting, and that does line up with a lot of what we talked about, uh, because just think of the elements there, not only the sleep paralysis, but, uh, the reading of the comic book before one goes to, to, to bed. Right. Potentially uh, contributing to some of the, like, the narrative information you have on hand for the interpretation of, uh, of stimuli within that, uh, That murky period of waking in which certain uh, hallucinations can occur.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think what Lindsay experienced is what we described in those episodes as being sort of like the first stage of the alien abduction experience. Right. Mm -hmm. You have sleep paralysis or some other kind of event that is difficult to explain. And then it sounds like Lindsay didn't go on to the next phase, which was going to a therapist or a hypnotist and having false memories created that
0: then somehow are extrapolated outward into something worse, right? Like actually
2: being taken aboard the ship.
0: Right, or just any kind of like repeated self-analysis of the memory that uh, props up the supernatural explanation.
2: Yeah, but again, this is a great example of like, we read lots of studies that were about sleep paralysis connected to the idea of alien abduction, but to have a first-hand account like this is is really nice. Uh, I think like the closest thing we had to that was we talked about that documentary, The Nightmare, and how there are many people in that documentary who thought that their sleep paralysis events were alien abductions.
1: You know, something I think might be interesting would be to sort of, come up with standard narratives about how people get from having an experience like this to one of two endpoints. You know, the path diverges, it forks off, and you can end up in the place where you say, I think I had a, a strange experience and I would explain it through sleep paralysis or I don't know what happened or something like that. And then on the other hand, you have, it was absolutely real and people won't believe me. Right. Like, how do you get, what determines which path you follow?
0: Well, I mean, I think there are a number of different factors there, but I mean, one of them is just like, what do you need in your life? Do you, is there a part of you that needs a, an experience greater than yourselves that no one else is going to be able to understand or only a select, uh, inviting community is going to understand? It's, you know, it's a desire yeah. for religious experience, a desire to See God. This is why a number of abductees report that their
2: experience, even though scary, is ultimately a positive experience for them because they come away from it feeling like, oh, I now know my place in the universe and that there's something above me that could be taking care of me.
1: It almost makes me wonder if this is parallel to what we're talking about with the science communication episode where something that should be a question of you making judgments based on like facts and reading evidence and stuff like that is really more determined by your social environment.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think both of these things, I meant to say this when we were talking about science communication, they both come back to a, a, fact that we hit over and over and over again on the show, which is just that like human beings as social animals just are prone to making mistakes like this, you know, in how we interpret our events and, and especially how we build culture around things that happen
0: to us so that we can explain the world around us. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more quick break. And when we come back, Carney will dish out the, the final trio of uh, listener mail for us here to, today. All right, we're back. Here's another piece of listener mail brought to us uh, by Carney, and uh, this one is from listener Allison. Allison writes in and says Mara Hart might be one of the coolest people out there, although that may be a bit biased, as I am also a fellow marine biologist, uh, ichthyologist to be exact. I love your podcast and listen every day while conducting my many hours of lab work. Among my favorite episodes are the ones where you had Mara Hart as a guest speaker. So I was beyond excited when I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Hart this past week at the American Fisheries Society Symposium in Tampa Bay, Florida, where she was one of the plenary speakers. I was able to find her uh, after her talk and have a quick conversation with her uh, one-on-one where I asked her for for some advice and commented on how much I love your podcast. Just like you guys, Dr. Hart is an amazing communicator of science, breaking down the barriers of the ivory tower that is often scientific research, and laying it out in a way that is interesting, engaging, and most importantly, fun. It was really inspiring to listen to her speak, especially as a female scientist in the early stages of my my career as a researcher. Seeing how confident and engaging she was gave me some serious hashtag science goals, and I hope that I can Quote, unquote, grow up to be just like her. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Can't wait for your next episode. Oh, Smiley what,
2: face. what a wonderful email. Well, she's yeah. got one up on us. We've never met Mara in real life. We've only just been able to talk to Mara on the phone before. But you're right. She is delightful. She is one of my favorite guests to have on the show. What I love about having Mara on the show is that she is just so down to earth about the science that she's involved in, but also how she – this gets back to science communication, how she communicates it to the public and how she she really expresses her wonder and awe over the things that she's studying. You know, it's – yeah, always fun to have her. So let's see what episodes – the Osadax boneworm episode That's she was right. on, uh, the coral reef episode, and then uh, we just recently had her on again for our, our uh, shark reproduction episode earlier this summer.
1: All right. Well, our next email comes in in reference to the episode that Robert and I did about the Tower of Babel and the confusion of languages. This was a fun one, wasn't it, Robert?
0: Oh yeah, this was this one was great because you had that wonderful convergence of history, mythology, science, linguistics. It all mm-hmm. came together.
1: Yeah, and so we, we talked about the idea of, or one of the things we discussed in the episode was the idea of the confusion of languages in the biblical story of the Tower of Babel. It's the confusion of tongues. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, God gets threatened by the tower project and says, "I'm going to make everybody speak different languages." But instead, we talked about how languages actually diverge. And one of the things we talked about was the the possible idea of language barriers around the world being a kind of cultural immunity barrier that helps prevent harmful memes from spreading as quickly as they could if everybody in the world spoke the same language.
0: Yeah, essentially like a like a firewall.
1: Yeah. And so like if you've got a a language, you've got some horrible meme like uh, I think uh, the obvious example would be Nazism. But, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that that catch on really quickly with a bunch of people and are very destructive, they do seem to be very rooted to the language language system in which they emerged very often, and so they don't spread quite as easily across language barriers.
2: So this is why, like, I can't has cheeseburger isn't that big in, like, I don't know, uh, Papua
1: New Guinea. That's exactly where we're going with this.
2: Whoa, it's like I read the – the I didn't, but it's like I read the letter.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so this is from Chris. Chris says, hi, my name is Chris and I was really fascinated by your Tower of Babel episode from last month. I love thinking about the great global flow of ideas and how languages play into the movement of philosophies and cultural norms. There were two things from your episode that really stood out to me. The first was your brief acknowledgement that Japanese as a language has not drastically evolved over time. I studied Japanese for about six years and have traveled there twice for about a month each. I have a theory that Japanese has not evolved very drastically because they actually have two phonetic alphabets and a symbol-based method of writing. Hiragana is their phonetic alphabet used for vocabulary that originated in Japan. Ka- Katakana is their phonetic alphabet used for all foreign words or expressions that were introduced to Japanese culture. Because foreign concepts are isolated to a separate system of expression, the original hiragana is very rarely forced to adapt or evolve. I guess it would maybe be more accurate to say that one of the Japanese alphabets is constantly adapting and taking in new words and concepts while the core original method of writing remains comparatively unchanged. I uh-huh. thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that is. Is,
2: yeah that is a fascinating – it's tr- true too. I studied Japanese in college. Uh, but yeah, I never thought of it that way before. It's kind of a way to enforce cultural tradition.
1: Yeah, uh and it's certainly true that loan concepts and loan words from other languages is one of the main ways that languages seem to evolve in the modern day mm. uh, or you know relatively modern day. I mean, you think about the way English came to it, came to us as it is, you know, it's this crazy fusion of uh German and Old Norse and mm-hmm. Spanish and uh, all the Latin derived languages, French, um and the the way those cultures came
0: together but so yeah really interesting i, I love how you brought up uh i can, I can has cheeseburger earlier because I, I think humor is a key way to look at uh at how memes travel like mm-hmm. not physical humor because everybody can get into the idea of like slapstick slapstick tends to uh like if you're if you're trying to check out comedy from other cultures and cultures with a foreign language uh it, the slapstick is going to be the easiest to understand or the outright right. like silly, goofy, clowny behavior. But when it has a linguistic quality to it and you're having to deal with the uh, the barrier of translation, uh, I think that's where you a lot of the stuff ends up falling flat.
1: Well, I think you'll be really interested to see where Chris goes next. Ah, so okay. Chris says, the other thing I was really inspired by was the section toward the end in regards to snow crash. And Chris says – Love that book. Um, and the notion of a universal language actually being detrimental to global human consciousness as it would allow the spread of potentially evil belief systems. I firmly believe that we are already witnessing the growth of a new global language. The kernel of this growth is modern meme culture. Ah. Uh-huh. Memes as a language are a combination of non-technical English and images or symbols. Images are universally understood, and very simplistic English is as close as you can get to a global language at this moment. When you combine the two, you end up with a type of messaging that can be understood and recreated on a global scale. Combined with the preferred method of distributing memes, the internet and social media, you have a way to very cheaply communicate ideas on a global scale with rapid... Fire quickness, and not have those ideas particularly hampered by translation. A scary part of this is that memes allowed for the global spread of anti-democratic political ideals. It's a fact—a fact that we witnessed in Brexit, in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, and the French election. We witnessed non-English and non-French-speaking actors communicating anti-democratic ideas to English and French-speaking American, British, and French citizens. Russia has been uh, known to weaponize thought viruses – as a comic book nerd, I'm excited to write that phrase (laughs) – and spread them through memes and massive disinformation dumps. What really irks me is that it's a one-way flow. Because countries like Russia and China maintain such stringent censorship laws and control over the Internet, they can keep their population somewhat inoculated from pro-democratic ideas that could potentially flow from us to them in meme form – Meanwhile, we hold freedom of speech as a core value of ours so that we lack the kind of isolation, inoculation that would prevent Russian anti-democratic memes from infecting us. And that's pretty much what I've got. Sorry it's so long. Thanks for reading. I'd love to hear back. Keep up the great work on the podcast. Thanks again, Chris. I have so many things I want to talk about related to this. (laughs) I I think – yeah, I think this is a really – this is something we've actually talked about a fair bit off – off mic, uh, is the idea of, of the ways new forms of communication allow ideas to spread over the internet so much more yeah. easily, but I've never put it in words like this. I think Chris has got a really interesting idea about the role memes play and you can absolutely see it for yourself. If you watch say uh, disinformation bots operating on Twitter, mm-hmm. they love memes. Right,
2: right. Yeah. So, uh, to his point about this being very comic booky, there is a classic issue of a, of a book called global frequency that, uh, uh, Warren Ellis, who I end up referencing on the show all the time, wrote, and it was drawn by the late Steve Dillon. And the premise was that a, a signal was intercepted by SETI and translated and then subsequently broadcast as a, a memetic information to the entire world. Mm-hmm. And because it was in meme format, it starts infecting people. Uh, it's designed, it's an, to infect people essentially so that like memes are the best carrier for this virus. Right. Yeah. So that is a, a really interesting concept on a sci-fi level. But then also I, I think it's interesting to step back and remember like the, the difference between the term meme that we use to describe JPEGs with the font impact on them mm-hmm. <laughs> on the internet versus what like people like uh, Richard Dawkins and Susan Blackmore had in mind when right. they first came up with the terminology. Right. Right. So maybe we should do a memetics
1: episode. Yeah. I mean, we've definitely touched on memetics in lots of episodes in the past, but uh, maybe we could devote something to the core idea. I mean, the basic concept of a meme originally is just the idea of a self-reproducing bit of cultural information. Right. So it could be a song. It could be a political belief. It could be anything that tends to make copies of itself in the minds of people who share some kind of language or cultural – well, I guess between anybody really – Um, in the same way that genes make copies of themselves in the gene pool. Right. Yeah. And then again, it's funny. There's a theme for this
2: listener mail that seems to be coming around, or maybe it's just, I'm obsessed with this topic again. It seems to me media literacy is super important here. Right. In Mm -hmm. that like what you see, if you're, if you see some of these memes that are designed specifically as a persuasive tools, right. They're like rhetorical weapons almost that go out there. Right. Uh, if you don't stop and try to judge them based on their merit, how they were created, who they were designed for, et cetera, then you're more likely to be susceptible to them and subsequently fooled by them. Which brings us to the Emoji movie. Right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Hit of the
2: summer.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, when we talk about issues like this, uh, that they, you know, they involve global politics, interaction between governments around the world. One thing that I help, that I think helps in how we, uh, we use language carefully in describing problems like this is to correctly identify the culprits. So when we talk about something like this, I think it is undeniably true. There have been, you know, enough reports that there's really no question that the Russian government does operate tons of disinformation campaigns on the internet and stuff like that. But I like to think of those as Kremlin disinformation pro- uh, products, not Russian disinformation products, yeah. Yeah. such that you don't identify them with the Russian people right. That's as like be res- being responsible for the them. The same
2: thing as accusing us of some similar kind of disinformation campaign or hacking campaign that our government might be up to behind the scenes, right? right. Yeah, exactly.
0: All right. It looks like we have one more bit of listener mail. One last uh, scrap here from Carney. Looks like it's uh, for you to read here, Christian.
2: Yeah, this last one comes to us from Duncan. And uh, I kind of struggled with whether or not I – for it, we got it about a week and a half ago. And I was like, I don't know how to respond to this. And so the fact that we were doing a listener mail episode seemed like a great place for us to address it because it's a complicated topic. He touches on two episodes that we've covered, the first being the Wicked Problems episode that Robert and I did oh, mm-hmm. about a year ago maybe. Yeah, it would have been. And then uh, Cleo Dynamic. Which we covered in the last two weeks. Now, Duncan says, Hi, guys. In two separate podcasts, you have referred to poverty and social inequality as wicked problems. And I feel that this is not only inaccurate, but also dangerous. It is hard to act from a place of pessimism and feeling that these problems are too complicated. And that makes most people throw up their hands and go, what is the point in trying? Definitions. One of the features of wicked problems is the difficulty of defining them. Poverty has a fairly clear, though scalar definition. Although different people will draw the line at different points on the scale, the measurable features of poverty are fairly clearly defined. Similarly, defining the success of a solution is simply a measure of whether people move up the scale in a meaningful way. Obviously, there are some complexities and ways to subdivide the concepts, but in general, Definition is not a problem. Solutions. Here again, a primary feature of Wicked Problems falls down. There are solutions to the majority of poverty situations, not a magic bullet for all of them, but a portfolio of policy measures that can have drastic effects if used together. In the repeating history episode, this is the Cleodynamics Dynamics one, you quoted Cleodynamics historians who said that reducing inequality is critical. These historians would, I am sure, be able to provide a series of policies that would achieve this based on fairly reliable historical data. Most economists that favor reducing inequality should be able to if asked. Most importantly, most of these solutions do not have major cyclical or intermeshed knock-on effects which make them impossible to implement, in most cases well-thought-out equality policy improves a lot of nearby issues like crime and drug addiction, but rarely do they result in any major detrimental side effects. So uh, he says, finally, in fact, poverty and inequality are among the most well-behaved, predictable social problems we have. He gives a number of examples here for us uh, that are their web links, so I'm not going to read you URLs over our listener mail episode. Then he, he ends by saying, I am not an expert, but I am sure there are hundreds of clever ideas for improving social equality among those that are. The reason we are not working to solve poverty is a lack of political will to do so, not because the problem is inherently difficult to solve. In my opinion, the reason there is a lack of political will is because inequality is a driving force of our current financial and political systems and the mechanism by which those who have power hold on to it. Why would the ruling class want to change it? Please give
0: people hope. Regards, Duncan. Well, you know, I think he makes some good points here. Um, I, I do want to agree that, first of all, that uh, that I think pessimism uh, is an area of inactivity, and it is difficult to act from a place of pessimism. We have to act as optimists uh and uh on uh, i would also like to return to the topic at some point in the future and and do an episode on the idea of a post scarcity world like mm. what what are what are some of the possible roadmaps to a post scarcity world what yeah. would it look like what are the you know what are the ideals that are wrapped up there and how long have we been we've been uh uh dreaming of it and trying to to figure out how to get there um in terms of wicked problems i i know that when we did that episode and it's been a little while we weren't so much trying to get people to focus on uh, objectives like this, but it was more like, OK, when someone comes at you, particularly the politician comes to you and they have a solution yeah. to a complex problem in society, uh, question what they are saying, question uh, the validity of this so-called solution. Yeah,
2: it comes down to critical thinking. Yeah, I mean. yeah. Uh, I actually pulled some of our notes from that Wicked Problems episode so that I could reference them back. And uh, I thought it was interesting, actually, because when you turn back and you look at the, the guys who phrased this, uh, Riddle and Weber, mm-hmm. they, they really dove into this in the 1973 paper, Dilemmas in a General Theory of Planning. They specifically used poverty as an example, uh, and they said – uh, poverty It's like tugging a loose string on a garment. What causes poverty? What is it? If it's merely low income, then that alone explodes out into concerns of both national and regional issues. But what about the economic aspects, the health and psychological aspects and the cultural issues? Right. So in regards to what Duncan was just saying to us. Yeah, I think it's easy – like if you look at it on a scalar level, uh, especially like an economic one, you can say, oh, yeah, this is a very easily solvable problem. But Duncan himself at the end talks about how the real difficulty that makes it inherently difficult to solve is political will – inequality and how that leads to our political systems and our financial systems, right? And ultimately the the ideas that those who have the power to change it aren't willing to do so, right?
1: That is the wicked problem nature of poverty in my mind. I mean, one obvious response that occurs to me is that saying a problem is difficult to eradicate with a simple solution is very different than saying a problem cannot be improved upon.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think wicked problems are more. How do how do we put this? Like, are something that you should be on the lookout for in terms of the rhetoric that is being. Pushed your way, right? In terms of how easy and/or difficult something is to solve. For instance, right now, and I think this debate has only become even stronger since we recorded the Wicked episode, uh, Wicked Problems episode. But healthcare. Mm-hmm. How many people in the last year? How many politicians in the last year have said, "Oh, healthcare, so easy to solve, right? Uh, we've got a perfect plan. This is so easy to solve." And you see in action how difficult it actually is right yeah
0: like if, if someone makes the argument this would be easy to solve but politics that's, <laughs> you're missing the point like politics and the political system that's part of addressing the problem uh, that the, the problem is wrapped around there that's where the thread is tangled
1: like it would be so easy to lose weight if not for my willpower <laughs> yeah, you <know>? yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah now
2: I want to go back to the notes here for just one last bit here on wicked problems wicked problems can't be solved they can can. Can only be mitigated, right? Uh, and one proposal for this is strategic design, using empathy, and favoring abductive reasoning and rapid prototyping. So essentially, the idea here for abductive reasoning is that the premise doesn't guarantee a solution, rather, that is, uh, that's deductive or logic reasoning. So this is essentially inferring the best, most simple solution.
1: Yeah. Abductive, the search for the best explanation.
2: So I, I appreciate, uh, Duncan, your letter because it really did make me think for a good long week about like, hmm, how do we respond to this? But at the end of the day, I do think that poverty can be defined as a wicked problem. Uh, I don't disagree with you, though, that we need to give people hope and we do need to think from an optimistic place. And I don't see defining things as a wicked problem as necessarily pessimistic.
1: No, I mean another side of that coin is you don't want to discourage people, but you also want to help give people reasonable expectations. Yeah, yeah. Um, like if you promise somebody the moon and then you can't quite deliver it, they're going to get disillusioned with whatever mechanism or system tried to deliver them the moon and failed. Sure. Instead, yeah. if you if you promise people reasonably attainable goals and you do attain those. That actually has a positive knock-on effect that gives people confidence in the the ability of their system of problem-solving to succeed again in the future. Anyways, if you
2: have more information that you want to relay to us either about wicked problems, cleodynamics, poverty, or any of the other topics that we talked about here today, you can send them to
0: Carney the Robot. How do they get in touch with Carney the Robot? Oh, well, you know, there are a number of different ways to go about that. You can head on over to our various social media accounts. Uh, we're on Facebook. That's where you'll find the discussion module uh, group if you want to join that uh, and uh, interact with other listeners uh, as well as, as us. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. Uh, the mothership is StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Yeah, that's where you'll find everything you need to know. That's where all the podcast episodes are as well as links out to those other accounts.
1: And if you want to get in touch with us directly, to- Directly, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at For more
0: on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Smart, <laughs> smart,